reports emerged that the COVID-19 pandemic may have been leaked from a lab in China and an international investigation may soon commence. This is Brief Before Impact. Welcome everyone to episode 19. I am your host, Matt Parker. We're going to be discussing this evening the national security impacts that have been revealed over the last 15 months during the COVID-19 pandemic. For the last year, the world has been absorbed with reports and data regarding the pandemic, the effects of COVID-19 on different age groups, on the immune-compromised individuals. It's all very well documented, and it's been repeated pretty much constantly this last year. However, the impacts on national security and defense, they have not seen as much attention as infection and death rates, frankly. In today's brief, I will give an overview on the recent reports that suggest COVID-19 may have begun in a virology lab as compared to leaping from animals to humans in a Chinese wet market. Second, I will describe the history of biological warfare and what weaknesses the pandemic has revealed on military's capabilities to cope with this type of outbreak. And finally, I'm going to share the courses of action that the United States national security apparatus should take in the future to prevent its military from becoming incapacitated in another global pandemic. Let's take a quick ad break, and then we're going to jump in today's episode. Now, welcome back, everyone. What we've all learned in the last year about how governments respond to a crisis is quite revealing. In my view, COVID-19, it was a true litmus test for political leadership. And globally, countries took similar approaches to the pandemic with national shutdowns of travel, shutting down non-essential businesses, while other countries implemented you know, strict social distancing policies while allowing businesses to still run at reasonable capacities. Ultimately, as I see it, any policy decision should always be rooted in an assessment of data, more importantly, accurate data. And any policy should be willing to adapt as new data is provided. Look, I understand it. No one policymaker is going to get it right on the very first swing at this thing, especially when you talk about COVID-19 and coming all the data originating from China. Over time, we were just going to have to adjust and adapt our policies. I think we have to have that flexibility. I think citizens have to realize that policymakers need to be uh, adjust their courses of action and the policies they prescribe as they come across new data. And that point brings the issue of what initiated the COVID-19 pandemic to the forefront of recent news reporting. In the early days of the pandemic, there were essentially two theories of how this began. One was began in a wet market in Wuhan, China, or it had begun in a virology lab in Wuhan, China. Now, in the early parts of 2020, there was an investigation from the World Health Organization, WHO, and other researchers agreed that the lab theory was unlikely to be true, and the virus most likely originated from the wet market. However, recent revelations from scientists and intelligence reports suggest that that conclusion may have been incorrect. According to Nathaniel Wixel, writing for The Hill, top U.S. public health officials and experts are increasingly lending credibility to the need for a deeper investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. Scientists who previously downplayed or dismissed the hypothesis that the virus could 
have leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China, are now increasingly saying that there is a need for further investigation. Scientists haven't discovered definitive proof uh, the virus leaked from a lab, but they also have no, not found hard evidence that shows that the virus started in animals before naturally infecting humans, which is why some now argue an investigation is needed. In addition, recent reporting from the Wall Street Journal cited a U.S. intelligence report that several researchers at China's Wuhan Institute of Virology fell ill with flu-like symptoms in November 2019, just before the coronavirus began infecting people across China and then the world, and that they required hospitalization. The first confirmed case in Wuhan, according to the Chinese government, was December 8, 2019. Now, Scott Gottlieb, who was a former head of the FDA during the Trump administration, he told CNBC last week that circumstantial evidence is growing to support the idea of a lab leak. Now, when I start thinking about last year, when COVID-19 really started to spread across the globe, I remember how quickly it seemed that that lab theory was just kind of dismissed by the media. And at the time, and still today, I believe that just your normal taxpaying citizens who don't work for the government, want to know definitively how the pandemic started. And they want to know it so we can prevent it from happening again in the future. That's just the bottom line, at least for myself. I want to know the cause so that we can stop another global pandemic down the road. Now, if COVID-19 started in a Chinese wet market, well, the world should demand that these markets are closed until they met specific hygiene standards. But if the covid leaked out of a virology lab doing some testing on dangerous, dangerous viruses. Again, the world should demand that this type of research either be stopped or at least reformed to prevent another leak. You know, so with that hope, let's discuss the detail in the lab, or I should say the lab in detail itself and what it was doing and its purpose. And there are three key facts to think about with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and WIV for short. First of all, it houses the Wuhan National Biosafety Laboratory. That is China's only biosafety level four lab, which means that it's the only facility in China permitted to handle the most dangerous known pathogens, pathogens that are, include like Ebola or Lassa viruses. Second, that lab is located just under nine miles from the wet market where some scientists say the outbreak may have originated. Its proximity to the first known cluster of cases at the Hunanan market has fueled speculation the lab could somehow be involved. And third, the WIV is home to this Chinese scientist who sequenced the complete novel coronavirus genome early, last, early this year just and started working on that vaccine. And scientists affiliated with the Institute, they've studied coronaviruses for years, but it's not that the only lab in, in China where coronaviruses are studied. And here's the bottom line regarding this lab. As China seeks to demonstrate its scientific, the scientific heft, you know, authority in the scientific field across the world, a spillover event at China's most prestigious virology lab and subsequent cover-up, uh, this would be another nail in the coffin for President Xi Jinping's personal reputation and the CCP's reputation on the global stage. That's according to Elizabeth Economy, Director of Asia Studies at the Council of Foreign Relations. What's fascinating at the national level here in the United States, uh, just recently last week, while I was doing research for this episode, an amendment that would ban the National Institute of Health, NIH, 
from funding certain types of research was approved by the Senate on May 25th amid new debates on whether or not the coronavirus originated in a Chinese lab. The amendment by Republican Senator Rand Paul, it was added to the Endless Frontier Act, which is a broader technology investment bill. And it bans the NIH from funding gain-of-function research, which is research that alters an organism or disease to make it more trans- transmissible or pathogenic. So here in the United States, as this leak from the virology lab continues to become more of a talking point and demands for investigations continue, uh, at least the Republican Party has already uh, passed, and I should say the Senate has already passed, that this type of research, gain-of-function research, can no longer continue or certainly be funded by United States dollars. So that is what the Wuhan lab is doing. And I wanted to pivot this recent reporting in the news about this potential lab leak theory and highlight biological warfare. And what I'm referring to specifically is something we don't hear that much about in the news media, which is why I want to put this together. Understanding what United States military, its national security apparatus does and is doing to, in fact, prepare our military to still fight wars amidst a global pandemic. So we're going to take a quick history of biological warfare. So we have some context here. This is according to uh, Dr. Edmund Hooker. Biological weapons including include a any microorganism that's a bacteria a virus or fungi or a toxin that's found in nature that can be used to kill or injure people the act of bioterrorism it can range from a simple hoax to the actual use of the biological weapons those weapons referred to as agents now a number of nations have or are seeking to acquire biological warfare agents and there are concerns that terrorist groups or individuals may acquire the technologies and expertise to use these destructive agents. Biological agents may have been used for an isolated assassination, as well as to cause an incapacitation or death to thousands. If the environment is contaminated, a long-term threat to the population could be created. So when we look at bioterrorism and biowarfare today, a number of countries have continued offensive biological weapons research and use. Additionally, since about the 1980s, terrorist organizations have become users of biological agents. Let me give you just a handful of examples. 1985, Iraq began an offensive biological weapons program producing anthrax. October 84, uh, over 700 people were intentionally infected with salmonella, and that was a contaminated restaurant salad bars in Oregon. 1994, there was a release of anthrax on the tops of buildings in Tokyo. 1996, an Ohio man attempted to obtain the bubonic plague cultures through the mail. 2001, anthrax was delivered to by mail to U.S. media and government offices. December 2002, there were six terrorist suspects that were arrested in England as they were attempting to produce a ricin laboratory. February 2004, three U.S. Senate office buildings were closed after toxin ricin was found in a mailroom. So the threat that biological agents will be used on both military forces and civilian populations, it's now more likely than it was at any other point in history. So it brings us to how is United States military preparing and maintaining its capacity to go to war, especially any war that's initiated with a biological weapon or a military has to operate in an environment 
that's been decimated by biological weapons. So at both the tactical and the strategic levels, militaries have to have the necessary flexibility to adapt to a dynamic situation. As updates came in regarding to COVID-19 virus, for example, uh, military units employed exist they employed uh, in existing operating procedures to assess infection outbreaks at different military outposts. Addressing the threats of biological or chemical warfare, for that matter, has always been a core competency for military units. They've always trained on it. However, the fight against terrorism in the last 20 years has reduced certain capacities that the military trains on in order to fight counterterrorism. Now that we, the United States, is getting back to focusing on that peer-to-peer nation-versus-nation type of warfare, uh, training for biological warfare, or chemical warfare for that matter, is stemming to come back to the forefront of its focus. So when we evaluate, how did the U.S. military respond initially to COVID-19? This is coming from War on the Rocks. In response to rising COVID-19 cases, the Defense Department issued an order March 25, 2020, prohibiting the deployment of service members for 60 days to prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus. It subsequently issued revised guidelines mandating that they be tested for COVID-19 and undergo a 14-day quarantine prior to deployment. Further, the Defense Department canceled, postponed, or significantly reduced major military exercises. Now, the public never really heard widespread reports of any military installation or unit really being crushed by COVID cases. And according to William Hayslein, writing for Forbes magazine, much of the praise surrounding the military's handling of the coronavirus, it has come from a low death rate. The death rate among the military uh, was 0.14 per 1,000 people compared to 21.4 per 1,000 people in the general population, or about 140 times lower. As of November 18, 2020, just 10 members of the armed forces had died from COVID-19. However, this is an unfair comparison, given the young age distribution of those in the military and the fact they are a much healthier group to begin with. Now, the average age of an enlisted military member is 27 years old. Average age of an officer, about 35 years old. Also, members of the military do have access to pretty high-quality health care. Now, the U.S. military, like other aspects of American society, it took a proactive approach to the pandemic uh, to limit infection spread and also benefits from that overall age and health status of its members. And that's good news, and it's encouraging about future pandemics should they arrive. But as the response is encouraging, the true challenge Uh, for the U.S. military in the instance of a global pandemic is translating that military preparedness to to actionable operations in a biological warfare conflict. Let me give you just a quick example of how U.S. military uh, fights some types of biological warfare, or I should say the challenge inherent to that warfare. One of the main biotech uh, biodetection systems in the U.S. military's inventory is called the Joint Biological Point Detection System. Its, its purpose is to provide an early warning and identification of aerosolized biological warfare agents. But the system is only somewhat effective against known agents. And there's only a set number of biological agents. You know, they detect things like anthrax. Uh, that's a very powerful biological weapon. And they can detect the plague and some others. Let me give you an idea here that makes this one system uh, somewhat ineffective. If you had someone just engineer 
a totally new agent that this system wasn't set up to detect, well, you wouldn't get a positive reading if this agent was floating around the air. Now, uh, a new bioweapon, you know, could be created by an adversarial state, uh, especially think about like a state-sponsored terrorist group. And this type of state especially has some type of, techn- you know, scientific technological support to engineer a new strain of a deadly virus, whether it's a plague or, or something else. Now, a guy like a terrorist just operating out of a cave in Afghanistan, hey, he's probably going to be able to do that. And this is why I highlight the idea of a state-sponsored terrorism. You've heard me, if you listen to my other episodes, talk about Iran, for example, how they've uh, been funding terrorist operations in their region. You know, I give an example of the last podcast, episode 17, I believe, or 18, about funding of Hamas, which is in the Gaza Strip. Now, what if Iran, with its resources, was able to create a new strain of some type of biological agent that the Israelis didn't actually have recognized in their system to fight biological agents. The, the results could be absolutely devastating, to say the least. And in my view, that's what COVID-19 has revealed, to should have revealed to most military leaders, is that this core competency of training for fights in a biological warfare setting, it just... We just raised the ante, to say the least, because now we're actually having to deal with that type of threat. According to Greg Barbasia, he's writing for an opinion piece for the Army Times April 2020, just a few months after the virus really got kicked off. Barbasia writes, let us remember what the core mission of the Department of Defense and the U.S. military truly is. It's, however, to maintain a level of readiness that ensures tactical superiority in a kinetic engagement with an adversary. Now, The disease propagating throughout our military will severely impact this national readiness, that upon which our way of life and foreign policy enforcement efficacy so depends. The entire reason biological warfare was created is precisely due to its lethal effectiveness. Now, let me emphasize this point written by Barbasia. He continues, Our near-peer nation-state adversaries are watching closely and assuredly updating their analysis of our national readiness levels regularly. International pressure to demonstrate military superiority, it's mounting, as evidenced by increasing saber-rattling around the globe. And our more sinister adversaries may find it hard not to kick us while we're down if they are confident in that assessment. Other countries are already taking advantage of that situation economically. Now, Like many of my episodes that you may have listened to, you've heard me discuss how America's adversaries study our preparedness and capabilities, both militarily speaking and other aspects of our society. And you have to understand, America's national security and intelligence community does the exact same thing as well. There is a team that only reads Chinese social media reports and Chinese news to decipher how the Chinese military is handling the virus. This is true for almost all countries around the world. The challenge to the United States and other Western democracies, it's that the transparency between government and citizenry, that's a key tenet of our way of life. And that's what makes partly of what makes democracy so special. So therefore, it's quite easy for America's adversaries to study our moves and to even get a temperature read on just American life. Now, that's not necessarily the case for closed off countries. Think about like North Korea or even Iran. And that brings us to the future of how the United States military should conduct itself and prepare itself for any type of biological warfare event. In my assessment, 
the department the Department of Defense its medical stocks will be expanded to prepare for any future emergency, specifically items like uh, personal protective equipment (PPE) or medicines that target biological or chemical weapons attacks. The military's medical research organizations will probably be more, provided more funding and focus in order to prepare contingency planning for you know future black swan events like COVID nineteen. And lastly, supply chains and national response. Uh, will be enhanced just to better coordinate between units stationed throughout the country. Now, the most dangerous uh, course of action, in my view, is going to be complacency. Complacency by American policymakers to forget that sense of urgency to prepare the U.S. military for future pandemics. Now, America is eventually going to shrug off COVID. Life will continue to return to normal. And politicians may focus on more immediate issues that have a more near-term effect, or at least on their re-election capability, they may fail to consider the long-term strategic impacts to the military preparedness for potential chemical or biological attacks. And that it's a false sense of security. It might take hold after a year or two after COVID completely fades away. And there needs to be an intentional focus, an intentional budget aligned with the scientific developments to address future pandemics. Let me just close off uh, highlighting something that happens in the military all the time. If you never served in the United States military or any other for that matter around the world, uh, militaries are always wargaming. What is a wargame? It's essentially practicing a scenario that may happen between an adversary and the future. Whenever I was in Army Special Forces, we participated in a number of these uh, with our specific skill set being in unconventional warfare and practicing those skill sets and those core competencies. And I wanted to highlight a war game that was ran by the U.S. Air Force in the fall of 2020. Uh, This is according to James Kipfield writing for Yahoo News. In the fall of 2020, so that was well after months into the pandemic, the U.S. Air Force simulated a conflict set up more than a decade in the future that began with a Chinese biological weapon attack that swept through U.S. bases and warships in the Indo-Pacific region. Then, a major Chinese military exercise was used as cover for the deployment of a massive invasion force. The simulation culminated with Chinese missile strikes raining down on U.S. bases and warships in the region and a lightning air and amphibious assault on the island of Taiwan. Now, during these war games that were conducted over those months, the U.S. forces lost, and they lost bad. Now, how did we get from the United States being this global military power to we're losing to the Chinese in the Indo-Pacific in a biological warfare conflict? In the early 2000s, Chinese experts and military analysts at the RAND Corporation, it's a national defense think think tank, these analysts were given a trove of classified U.S. intelligence on Beijing's military plans and their weapons programs. And these analysts were asked how to war game a confrontation 10 years into the future. Now, the PLA, which is Chinese military, had clearly studied U.S. military operations over the course of two wars against Iraq. Both operations relied on methodical, months-long buildup of forces to uncontested bases in the region, followed by U.S. aircraft dominating the skies and then carrying out devastating attacks 
on the enemy's command and control systems. What was China's answer to that strategy? Their answer was a well-funded strategy that the Pentagon refers to as anti-access aerial denial. This means that China would prevent an adversary like the United States from being able to carry out the sort of significant military buildup it carried out during two Iraq wars. The PLA's military plans rely on space-based and airborne surveillance and reconnaissance platforms, massive precision-guided missile arsenals, submarines, militarized man-made islands in the South China Sea, and a host of conventional air and naval forces to hold the U.S. and allied bases, ports, and warships in the region at risk. Because it only lies 90 miles from Taiwan, China needs only to hold U.S. forces at bay for a matter of weeks to achieve its strategic objective capturing Taiwan. And if you'd like to hear more details about the issue between China and Taiwan, and more importantly, the South China Sea, go back to earlier episodes, episode 14 and 15. I highlight both of those issues, including the militarized man-made islands in the South China Sea, in great detail on those two episodes. And this kind of brings us to the following concluding idea, or question, is what must America do? You know, I just laid out this kind of glim uh, future result of a biological you know, conflict and the resulting loss of American forces in the Indo-Pacific region. So what's America going to do? Ultimately, I think if we can design a military force that creates a level of uncertainty and it causes Chinese leaders to question whether they can accomplish their goals militarily, this should give us the capability to deter China's threats. As China views America's military right now, they're creating a game plan. And they're able to assess what they can and cannot get away with, with whatever goals they're trying to achieve. The best position the American military can be in is to be a force that is actually denies this uh, level of certainty to the Chinese. To where they actually question and lower their probability of success. And that's the balance you have to strike between a peer-to-peer nation-state conflict. There's a, a great example since we've been at you know fighting terrorism for the last 20 years. A great example of uh, what terrorism versus peer-to-peer warfare looks like. Terrorism, it is really hard to find the bad guy. But it's really easy to kill him. You know, Nation-state versus nation-state, it's really easy to find the, the bad guy. But it's very hard to kill him. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you got something out of learning a little bit more about biological warfare and the threats that it poses the United States. As the lab leak theory continues and these investigations come to fruition, which I hope produce conclusive results, whether it's the wet market or it's the virology lab, I want to know where the COVID-19 pandemic conclusively began at. That way we can move forward and create um, a plan to never allow that kind of pandemic to happen again. And for us, our national defense in the United States, if you've ever heard me talk about how you conduct an ambush against the enemy, you always initiate that ambush with your most devastating weapon. Look at what COVID-19 was. It devastated the globe. It shut, shut down economies, uh, killed millions of people, and really destroyed a way of life for that's going to have a dramatic impact for years to come. Now, was that initiated by the Chinese government, I have no idea. That 
evidence has yet to be produced. But in the future, understand the impact, since now we've all lived under the COVID-19 pandemic, the impacts of what biological warfare actually looks like. We've seen what can happen on a global scale if a biological weapon could be released into the, into the globe. Now, what if after that initiation of such a weapon, there was a military conflict between some of the world's superpowers or a followed on by a terrorist attack of some sort? This is why it's so important that we remain diligent and ensure as Americans that our national defense and readiness and preparedness is at the forefront of our policymakers' minds. Thanks for tuning in this week. Really appreciate you listening. Follow me on Instagram at Brief Before Impact. Certainly love your, your questions there. And as always, I certainly hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker, and this is Brief Before Impact. If you like today's podcast, please rate and review us on the app you listen to. Feel free to engage with us on social media. You can interact with us on Instagram. Follow us at Brief Before Impact, all one word. Any views or opinions represented in today's podcast are personal and belong solely to Matt Parker and Brief Before Impact podcast. All content we provide is of our opinion and is not attendant to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.